Hello, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And I hope your day is going well, your family life is swell, and you are living in your comfort. Because that's all that we ask for, to be able to take care of our home and a little comfort. And today we're not going to talk about black history. We're going to talk about white history. And yes, whiteness does have a history. I will not say that it is a great history, but it is what it is. They say if you want to make a difference in this world, you have to do what you do best. And to me, this is what I do best. I slip into darkness and bring truth to the light. And I do it for you, my friends. I do it for knowledge and I do it for my belief that we will not go anywhere as a people until we understand and know where we came from. Yes, the deep rivers that we've had to cross. And with that being said, let's slip into a little darkness. Segregation in the United States was created by whiteness after the United States abolished slavery. And we as a people continue to be marginalized through enforced segregation. And segregation is the practice of requiring separate housing, education, and other services for people of color. In this episode, you will hear me speak of things like Black Codes and Jim Crow and the Great Migration, all things that I have told you about in other episodes. And segregation was the great law that created all of those words. Segregation was made law several times in the 18th and 19th century America, as some believed that black and white people were incapable of coexisting. In the lead up to the liberation of enslaved people under the 13th Amendment, abolitionists argued about what the fate of slaves should be once they were freed. One group argued for colonization, either by returning the formerly enslaved people to Africa or creating their own homeland. In 1862, President Abraham Lincoln recognized the ex-slave countries of Haiti and Libya, hoping to open up channels for colonization, with Congress allocating 600000 to help. While the colonization plan did not pan out, the country instead set forth on a path of legally mandated segregation. The first steps 
toward official segregation came in the form of black codes. These were laws passed throughout the South starting in 1865 that dictated most aspects of black people's lives, including where they could work and live. The codes also ensured black people's availability for cheap labor after slavery was abolished. Segregation soon became official policy enforced by a series of Southern laws. Through so-called Jim Crow laws named after a derogatory term for blacks, legislators segregated everything from schools to residential areas to public parks to theaters to pools to cemeteries, asylum, jails, and residential homes. There were separate waiting rooms for white people and black people in professional offices. And in 1915, Oklahoma became the first state to even segregate public phone booths. Colleges were segregated and separate black institutions like Howard University in Washington, D.C. and Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee were created to compensate. Virginia's Hampton Institute was established in 1869 as a school for black youth, but with white instructors teaching skills to relegate black people in service positions to whites. In 1875, the outgoing Republican-controlled House and Senate passed a civil rights bill outlawing discrimination in schools, churches, and public transportation. But the bill was barely enforced and was overturned by the Supreme Court in 1883. In 1896, the Supreme Court ruled in Plessy v. Ferguson that segregation was constitutional. The ruling established the idea of separate but equal The case involved a mixed-race man who was forced to sit in the black-designated train car under Louisiana's Separate Car Act. As part of the segregation movement, some cities instituted zoning laws that prohibited black families from moving into white-dominant blocks. In 1917, as part of Buchanan v. Worley, the Supreme Court found such zoning to be unconstitutional because it interfered with property rights of owners. Using loopholes in that ruling in the 1920s, Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover created a federal zoning committee to persuade local boards to pass rules preventing lower-income families from moving into middle-income neighborhoods, an effort that targeted black families. Now, here's the kicker, my friends. (laughs) There's always something that opens our eyes a little wider. Richmond, Virginia, decreed that people were barred from residency on any block where they could not legally marry the majority of residents. And this invoked Virginia's anti-mixed-race marriage laws and was not technically in violation of the Supreme Court decision. During the Great Migration, 
a period between 1916 and 1970, six million African Americans left the South. Huge numbers moved northeast and reported discrimination and segregation similar to what they had experienced in the South. Well, I'm sorry, but no one ever said that the North was the promised land. And wherever whiteness was, segregation was also. And as late as the 1940s, it was still possible to find whites-only signs on businesses in the North. Segregated schools and neighborhoods existed, and even after World War II, black activists reported hostile reactions when black people attempted to move into white neighborhoods. And I know this to be true firsthand, my friends, because it has happened to me a couple of times in the 1970s. I can remember in one instance where I was about to rent a house in a majority white neighborhood. And the owner of the house came to me and told me that he had been threatened by the neighborhood to burn the house down if they rented it to me. And he told me that he would rent me the house anyway, but I refused because I did not want this man to lose his property. Now, the Public Works Administration's efforts to build housing for people displaced during the Great Depression focused on homes for white families in white communities. Only a small portion of houses was built for black families, and those were limited to segregated black communities. In some cases, previously integrated communities were torn down by the PWA and replaced by segregated projects. The reason given for the policy was that black families would bring down property values. And in my hometown of Akron, there were projects on every side of town, and they were all in the black neighborhoods. Starting in the 1930s, the Federal Home Loan Bank Board and the Homeowners Loan Corporation conspired to create maps with marked areas considered bad risk for mortgages in a practice known as redlining. The areas marked in red as hazardous typically outlined black neighborhoods. This kind of mapping concentrated poverty as mostly black residents in redlined neighborhoods had no access or only very expensive access to loans. And my friends, this practice did not begin to end until the 1970s. Then in 2008, a system of reverse redlining, which extended credit on unfair terms with subprime loans, created a higher rate of foreclosures in black neighborhoods during the housing crisis. In 1948, the Supreme Court ruled that a black family had the right to move into a newly purchased home in a quiet neighborhood in St. Louis, despite a covenant dating back to 1911 that precluded the use of the property in the area by any person not of the Caucasian race. In Shelley v. Kramer, 
attorneys for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, led by Thurgood Marshall, argued that allowing such white-only real estate covenants were not only morally wrong, but strategically misguided in a time when the country was trying to promote a unified anti-Soviet agenda under President Harry Truman. And civil rights activists jumped right on that because they saw the landmark case as an example of how to start to undo trappings of segregation at the federal level. But while the Supreme Court ruled that white-only covenants were not enforceable, the real estate playing field was hardly leveled. The Housing Act of 1949 was proposed by Truman to solve a housing shortage caused by soldiers returning from World War II. The act subsidized housing for whites only even stipulating that black families could not purchase the houses even on resale, and the program effectively resulted in the government funding white flight from cities. And we all know what that white flight was about, right? One of the most notorious of the white-only communities created by the Housing Act was Levittown, New York, built in 1949. Segregation of children in public schools was struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional in 1954 with Brown v. Board of Education. The case was originally filed in Topeka, Kansas, after seven-year-old Linda Brown was rejected from the all-white schools there. A follow-up opinion handed decision making to local courts, which allowed some districts to defy school desegregation. This led to a showdown in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957, when President Dwight D. Eisenhower deplored federal troops to ensure nine black students entered high school after Arkansas Governor Orville Fabus had called in the National Guard to block them. When Rosa Parks was arrested in 1955 after refusing to give up her bus seat to a white man in Montgomery, Alabama, the civil rights movement began in earnest. Through the efforts of organizers like Dr. Martin Luther King and the resulting protests, the Civil Rights Act was signed in 1964. Outlawing discrimination through desegregation was a slow process, especially in schools. Nine years, my friend, it took nine years from the bus boycott in Montgomery until the Civil Rights Act was signed. One of the worst incidents of anti-integration happened in 1974 when violence broke out in Boston when, in order to solve the city's school segregation problem, courts mandated a busing system that carried black students from predominantly Roxbury to South Boston schools and vice versa. So my friends, what they were doing, they were shipping black students to white schools and shipping white students to black schools. 
And remembering what Governor George Wallace said in Alabama, if you keep them out of the classroom together, you will keep them out of the bedroom together. And thus it did not happen. And interracial marriages and interracial children began to increase. The state had passed the Elimination of Racial Balance Law in 1965, but it had been held up in court by Irish Catholic opposition. Police protected the black students as several days of violence broke out between police and Southie residents. White crowds greeted the buses with insults and further violence erupted between Southie residents and retaliating Roxbury crowds. State troopers were called in until the violence subsided after a few weeks. Segregation persists in the 21st century. Studies show that while the public overwhelmingly supports integrated schools, only a third of Americans want federal government intervention to enforce it. The term apartheid schools describes still existing largely segregated schools where whites make up 0 to 10% of the student body. The phenomenon reflects residential segregation in cities and communities across the country which is not created by overly racial laws, but by local ordinances that target minorities disproportionately. So there you have it, my friends. Segregation in the United States. Is it fair? Of course it's not. But we have been riding in this storm since they took the chains out from around our necks. And we will continue to ride it and whip it until it ceases to exist. And although I may not be around to see it, when the storm is over, you won't remember how you made it through, how you managed to survive. You won't even be sure, in fact, whether the storm is really over. But one thing is certain. When you come out of the storm, you won't be the same person who walked in. Until next time, my friends, it's been my honor.